Could I ask you to take your Bibles and to turn to Isaiah chapter 6 this morning? Our portion of Scripture we're breaking from our regular series today on this Mission Sunday, and we're going to read together Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, and that'll be the portion uh, that we will just consider what God has to say to us from His Word today. Let's read together Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called to another, said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Just so far in God's word this morning. And I want to start today just as we've come on this mission Sunday to think particularly about missions. I just want to start with a very simple question. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? What motivates you each day to to get up and to go and do the things that fill your days? Perhaps you've gone through seasons of tough times in your marriage or in your career. Perhaps you've gone through seasons spiritually that were tough. And during those times, you've asked yourself, why am I here? What is my life really about? Does God really have a purpose for my life? Why is it so hard to be a Christian? Why do I feel like such a failure before God? What can I ever do to be of usefulness in the kingdom of God? You see, your answer to those kinds of questions will determine why you do what you do how you live, what your life looks like, and what motivates the choices that you make. Now I know that some of you have come from a a corporate business environment, and when these kinds of questions of purpose uh, get asked in, in a company, often the directors will call the company together or call the senior management together for a strategic planning session. And the outcome of a, of a well-organized and a well-run strategic planning session will usually be a mission statement, a vision statement, core values, and a strategy. Now, for those of you who maybe never done that before, uh, let me quickly define the terms for you. Uh, mission. Mission defines the fundamental purpose of an organization. It basically describes what you do. Vision defines the desired goal of an organization. A vision statement uh, is meant to be inspirational. It's the basis for the organization's planning and it provides the reason behind the mission. Uh, It really describes why you do what you do. 
And then often a company will define their core values, which are the, the core beliefs and attitudes that are shared among the stakeholders of the organization. It describes who you are. And then fourthly, we have the strategy, which defines how you then plan to go about the process of fulfilling your mission in order to achieve your vision. It describes how you do it. Now, what has this got to do with Isaiah chapter six and with us as God's people here at Honey Ridge today? And I would propose that it's got everything to do with the questions that I've been asking. Why are you here today? Why are you a Christian? What is the purpose of your life? Why do you participate or not participate in various aspects of the life and ministry of this church? What motivates you each day? What is your vision for serving God? What is it that will keep you going despite your own sinfulness and, and failings in the Christian life? What will keep you following Jesus Christ even when suffering and persecution and opposition arises? What will keep you going when your witness and your evangelism for Jesus is just outright rejected? I want to propose that this well-known passage in Isaiah 6 gives us a biblical vision for gospel mission. And by gospel mission, I, I don't only mean going to, to some foreign country to, to be a missionary. It, it certainly includes that. But it's, it's much bigger than that. It's much closer to home, I would argue, than that as well. I think the problem with 21st century missions and evangelism, if I can use those terms very broadly, is that the average Christian sitting in churches around our city today feels that he or she has got nothing to do with gospel mission. We have a, a professional team who do evangelism. We have a, a, a laminated, glossy, double-sided bookmark filled with full-time missionaries who do missions. And we pray for them and we support them financially so that they can do missions. But if we are honest, the average Christian seems to have lost sight of the great commission which Jesus gave to his disciples, which extended to all of us as the disciples of Jesus Christ today, that the primary reason we exist as a community of believers is to make Jesus Christ known to all the ends of the earth. And that starts right here in Johannesburg. You and I have been saved by God out of the world. We've been saved to be a holy people in order that as holy people we can go back into the world to make disciples of all nations. Very few non-Christians walk through the doors of our church on a Sunday morning anymore because they've got nothing better to do on a Sunday. Those days are, are long gone and so what are we doing as a community of God's people saved by the grace of God? What are we doing to make Jesus Christ known to a lost and a dying world outside of these four walls of Honey Ridge Baptist Church? And I suggest that we will do nothing or we will do very little unless we have a biblical vision for gospel mission. And so that's why we turn this morning to Isaiah. And I want to just look at the passage under the headings that I've mentioned. Let's see to begin with the vision that Isaiah had in verses one to four. 
Now, in all the cases in my, back in my engineering days when I was involved in our company's um, strategic planning sessions, the most important thing to do was to pin down the vision. If the vision was fuzzy, then the rest of the process became fuzzy. If the vision was superficial, uh, then motivation to achieve it was lost. If the vision was not a common vision shared by all, well then internal factions developed which disabled the organization. So defining the vision was the hardest thing to do because it required people to see something bigger and greater than the sum of the parts. As we look around the table and you see who makes up an organization, the vision is to define something bigger than any individual around the table. It was something which needed to be inspiring. And yet at the same time, it had to relate to people on the ground level to be motivated to work hard every day with passion and commitment. And so as we turn to Isaiah, we find here that the vision is crystal clear. It's given to Isaiah by the chief executive officer of the universe. And the vision that Isaiah is given is nothing other than a glimpse of the glory and the majesty of God himself. Let's just read those few verses again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now notice how Isaiah starts or introduces this section. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now Uzziah's death around 740 BC marks the end of a great period of stability and progress for Israel. Uzziah had reigned 52 years and he did what was right in God's eyes. He sought the Lord. The Lord prospered him in all his ways. He achieved great things in construction and agriculture. Uh, his army, God gave him great military victories. But toward the end of his life, he became proud. He started to look at all that God had done and to attribute it to himself. And so God struck him with leprosy and his life ends as a lonely king under divine judgment. And it's against that tragic backdrop that Isaiah says, in the year that, that our great king Uzziah died, look down at verse five, I saw the king, the Lord of hosts, high and lifted up, sitting on his throne in heaven. What we see clearly here in these verses is that Isaiah was struck by the, the glory and the holiness of this sovereign king of the universe, a, a God who is totally transcendent, he's totally other, he's pure and righteous, a God who is worthy of all our worship. Isaiah caught a glimpse of the glory and the holiness and the majesty of God. And it was something so much bigger so much bigger than Isaiah, so much bigger than the people of Israel, so much greater than anything he could have ever imagined or experienced. It was all consuming for him. And as we will see, it was something which, although so high and lofty, he says the train of his robe filled the temple. 
It was something which clearly impacted Isaiah right down on earth where he stood. So this vision of God was life-changing. This vision became the why of the rest of Isaiah's life. If you were to find Isaiah at any point in his life later on, and you were to ask Isaiah, Isaiah, why are you doing what you're doing? He would say, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. In the second place then, let's consider Isaiah's mission. And we didn't read those verses for the sake of time, but his mission is found in verses nine to 13. This is what the what of what Isaiah had to do. And God's mission for Isaiah was quite simple. Look at verse nine, preach the word. God said to Isaiah, go and say to this people, or go and tell these people, some translations say. And as you glance over verses nine and 10, you see that the message that he was given to preach, this is certainly not the message any young prophet or preacher would consider as a, as a good topic on which to begin your ministry. Isaiah was given a most difficult mission to preach the imminent judgment of God to a people who God says would be hardened by the message and who would reject the very message that could offer them hope. But here we can already see why having the right vision uh, is so crucial. Because, the vision, because of the vision that Isaiah had of God, because he had seen the glory of God who is holy, 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 he now understands and processes his task, his mission, in the light of that vision. Notice that Isaiah does not object to the mission given to him. He does not complain and walk away. He does not resign from his job in order to find a more suitable mission at the coast. He does not walk away from his faith in God. He simply commits to the task assigned to him by God because God is worthy of his full obedience. Just an aside here, how often do you and I process all that is happening in our lives, in us, around us, in the world, in the light of a biblical vision of God? I fear because I know this is true for my own heart that many Christians don't really have God in their vision as we ought. Why they hold this world so dear, what motivates us, what determines our worldview, it is often not a clear vision of God, is it? But rather it's an inflated and selfish vision of ourselves. How's this gonna impact me? How do I feel about this or that? What impact is this or that gonna have on me and my family and, and my children? What do I think will be best for us? And we make all of those decisions without considering God at all. We need to recover this all-consuming vision of God in our lives. Unless God and his glory is the center of our vision, then some other idol is. And sadly, that seems to be so evident in the fact that many who call themselves Christians today are seen to be on a mission for themselves. Well, let's move on to the third point and consider briefly the core values of the man whom God would send on a mission to be his spokesman. We see the values listed in verses five to seven. And some of you might be saying at this point, man, I hate missions weekends. I know where this is going. Clinton, I don't like it. I'm not Isaiah. 
He was a great man of God. He was a man of faith. God called him to be a prophet. God gave him all the gifts that he needed to be this great prophet. I don't have those gifts. I don't have his faith. I'm just perhaps a a housewife or a a teacher or a student or a retired person. I'm too shy. I'm not equipped to serve God like Isaiah, so don't go there. Well, it's very interesting when we look at the passage to find out what are the core values which Isaiah had, what made him a suitable candidate for this great and difficult work of God was that he was a sinner saved by grace. That's it. What set Isaiah apart to be the man of God's choosing was that he was a sinner saved by grace. Look at verse five. Woe is me, said Isaiah, for I am lost and I'm the man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. After seeing this vision of God in verses one to four, Isaiah is struck to his core with his own personal sinfulness, as well as then an overwhelming sense of guilt as he identifies corporately with the sinfulness of his own people. So there's both an individual and a corporate element to his realization of sin which qualifies him to be used by God. He realized that he needed salvation just as much as the people to whom God was going to send him. And so in the presence of a holy God, Isaiah realized that there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are told something incredible in verse six and seven that in the light of all that we know about God and his holiness and his wrath and hatred against sin, we've been seeing some of that in Revelation recently, we find here that Isaiah is not consumed by the wrath of God. He sees God in all his glory and he's not consumed, he's not banished from the presence of God. Why is that? Well, we find that he is not consumed by the holiness of God because the holy God makes atonement for his sins and removes his guilt. Now that's the gospel right there. Isaiah was accepted in the presence of God not because of anything in him, not because of his gifts and abilities, not because of his good deeds, not because of his Jewish heritage, but only because of Jesus Christ. His sins were atoned for, his guilt was removed by the God who made a way of salvation open to all who would trust in his Messiah's son who was to come. And if you say, Clinton, you're reading way too much into that verse than that, well, just read Isaiah 53 later on this afternoon to find out what Isaiah understood about the suffering servant who was to come, the one who was pierced for our transgressions, the one who was crushed for our iniquities, the one whose punishment brought us peace with God. The core value of a Christian in order to make you useful for the kingdom of God is that you are a sinner who is saved by grace. Would that be a description of yourself today? Is that how your social media profile describes you in one sentence? Well, finally then, let's consider the strategy. Isaiah has seen a a clear vision of God 
He's recognized his own sinfulness. He recognizes that he's been accepted by God on the basis of God's saving grace. But in order for him to achieve the mission now that God has for him to do, there is the practicality of the how. And the how is explained to us in verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. We find the amazing truth here in Isaiah, which is exactly the same truth repeated by Jesus in the Great Commission, that God is pleased to accomplish his purposes on earth through weak human instruments. That God has chosen to make the glory of himself and his gospel known to the world through the mission of the church. Picture the scene in your mind. Here's Isaiah standing, as it were, in the throne room of heaven. The Lord is sitting on his throne, reigning over all things, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, surrounded by seraphim, these flaming angels who are eager to do God's will. And we have God speaking and says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And in response to this call for action, we find Isaiah responding to the vision of God, responding to the grace of God that he has received in salvation, and he immediately surrenders himself to the service of God. Here I am, send me. That's God's strategy for gospel mission, to send out those who are totally caught up with the vision of him who are totally devoted to the service of him who loved them enough to atone for their sins through the death of his only begotten son. And so as I conclude this morning, I wanna just rerun through these points in terms of application for us this morning. And in the first place, the first point of application is that our vision must be of Jesus Christ. The New Testament makes it very clear. It's a wonderful passage. John chapter 12, verse 41, tells us that what motivated Isaiah is exactly what motivates us. Because John tells us that when Isaiah had this vision, he beheld the glory of Jesus and spoke of him. A veiled glimpse of Jesus in the Old Testament was enough to motivate Isaiah for a most difficult mission for the rest of his life. He was speaking for God at the lowest point in the history of Israel. His message was one of judgment, but like Moses, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. So my dear friends this morning, if Jesus Christ is not your vision, you will run out of steam, no matter what it is that you are doing. No other motivation will go the distance. You may have tried to do many good things for God, many good things in the church, but if your motivation and your energy is not this vision of Jesus Christ and his glory, you will run out of steam. You'll become discouraged, you'll become legalistic, you'll become judgmental, and you may even abandon the faith. Our vision must be of Jesus Christ and his glory. Secondly, our mission must be to proclaim Jesus to a lost and dying world. And we really have got no excuses. 
Thank God that we don't live to preach the old covenant message of curses and judgment that Isaiah had to. Thank God that, that he has considered us to be worthy servants and ministers and ambassadors of the new covenant. What a glorious gospel we have to proclaim. We have the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's free to all who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. How can we keep this to ourselves? How can we designate this task only to those who are on a bookmark? We love you on the bookmark, by the way. Um, but why is the privilege reserved for these eight families? Those who are willing to travel to faraway lands, we praise God for each and every one of them, but what about you? What about me? What about our neighbor? What about our children? Not one of these missionaries will tell your colleague at work or the child in your classroom about Jesus Christ. Not one. Your purpose as a Christian is to proclaim Jesus and his glory right where God has placed you. You are to build relationships with unbelievers, with gospel intentionality, so that you can proclaim Jesus Christ to them. John Stott calls this holy worldliness, being set apart by God as a holy people to go back into the world in which we live to win others for the kingdom of God. Pray and ask God to give you opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with unbelievers. It's your job, it's your mission. Thirdly, our characteristic attitude or core value as a Christian must be one who is a trophy of God's grace. You need a personal experience of grace. Dear Christian, may we never lose sight this morning of what God did for you, what he did for me, when he shone his light into your heart and revealed the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to you. You and I are nothing apart from the gospel of Jesus. You and I have no purpose on this earth apart from the grace of God to you. Young people, as you pursue university, as you pursue your careers, young professionals, as you start to move up the ranks of your organizations, you have no purpose here on earth apart from the grace of God to you in the gospel so that you might be a conduit of that grace to others. The rest is meaningless. So may this reality that we are jars of clay, saved by God's grace, be the ever-prevailing attitude of our lives. How do you know if you have this core value of a Christian humility and, and Christian gospel gratitude? How do you know if that's in your heart or not? Well, you will be a person who has a deep compassion for those around you who are going to a lost eternity. If you care two hoots for the lost around you, I would really question whether you understand the gospel. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon explains this. Speaking of Isaiah, this man of God felt also a deep sense of the sin of the people among whom he dwelt. He cried, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I do not think, Spurgeon says, a man could be a good missionary if he winks at sin that surrounds him. 
unless it stinks in his nostrils, unless it makes his soul boil with holy indignation, unless, like Paul, his heart is stirred in him, how can he speak as he should about the message of his God? Familiarity with evil, Christian, too often takes off the edge of that tender feeling. In other words, we become so desensitized by the sin around us that we no longer feel for those who are lost in sin. Men readily cease to weep over the sin which is always before their eyes. You may look upon the superstitions of Rome till you almost admire the gallant show, and I suppose you may regard the heathen temples till the majesty of its architecture makes you forget the infamy of its purpose. But it must not be so. We must feel that we dwell among a people of unclean lips and we must bear their sin upon our hearts, repenting for them if they will not, breaking our hearts over them because their hearts are as hardened against their God. Only in such a frame of mind shall we be fit to go forth in God's name. It's only when you see yourself as Isaiah did and you cry out, woe is me, I am a sinner, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. It's only as we experience God's love and grace to us in the face of Jesus Christ that we will be able to love and pursue others who then are outside of Christ in order to win them to Christ. And then finally, in the light of all that we've, we've said, our strategy must be eager and willing service. One of the parenting books which Karen read when our kids were, were little um, taught that our children must obey all the way, right away, with a happy heart. And I think that's a perfect summary for the attitude of Isaiah. It should be a perfect summary of you and me as Christians in our service of God. In the light of the, the vision of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us in, in reconciling us to himself, in commissioning us to then take this treasure of the gospel to the nations, let us respond with eager and willing obedience all the way, right away, with a happy heart. Here I am, Lord, send me. Listen to Spurgeon again. I make no apologies for quoting him this morning. I feel in my soul, though I cannot speak it out, an inward grieving sympathy with God that God himself should have to cry from his throne, whom shall I send? Alas, my God, are there no volunteers for thy service? What, all these priests and sons of Aaron, will none of them run upon thine errand? And all these Levites, will not one of them offer himself? No, not one. Ah, it is grievous, grievous beyond all thought that there should be such multitudes of men and women in the church of God who nevertheless seem unfit to be sent upon the master's work or at least never even offer to go and he has to cry, whom shall I send? What, out of all these saved ones, no willing messengers to the heathen? Where are his ministers? Will none of these cross seas to heathen lands? Here are thousands of us working at home. Are none of us called to go abroad? Will none of us carry the gospel to regions beyond? Are none of us bound to go? 
Does the divine voice appeal to our thousands of preachers and find no response so that again he cries, whom shall I send? Here, Spurgeon was preaching to his church before him, just as we are here this morning. Here are multitudes of professing Christians making money, getting rich, eating fat, and drinking the sweet. Is there not one to go for Christ? Men travel abroad for trade. Will they not go for Jesus? They even risk life amid eternal snows. Are there no heroes for the cross? Here and there, a young man, perhaps with little qualification and no experience, offers himself, and he may or may not go. But can it be true that the majority of educated, intelligent, Christian young men and women are more willing to let the heathen be damned than to let the treasures of this world go into the hands of others? Alas, for some reason or other, I'm not going to question the reasons God himself may look over all of his church and finding no volunteers may utter the pathetic cry, whom shall I send and who will go for us? End quote. It says, God looks across our church today and he asks, who will go into our local neighborhood to befriend sinners won't you respond, here I am, send me? As God asks, who will go into our schools and into our sports clubs and into the Joburg corporate offices to reach sinners for the gospel? Won't you respond, here I am, send me? As God asks, who will lead our youth groups and teach our children in Bible land next year the good news of his love? Won't you respond, here I am, send me. As God asks us who will befriend the orphan and the widow and the elderly and the sick in our midst to share the love of Jesus with them, won't you respond, here I am, send me. As God then asks who will go to the unreached people groups of this world that all may hear the gospel before Jesus returns, won't you respond, here I am, send me. Allow me to close with one final word from the Prince of Preachers. That's Spurgeon, by the way. Now, brethren, if at any time the mission field lacks workers, it's a sad thing that it should be so, and yet it is so. Should not that fact make each person look to himself and say, where am I? What position do I occupy towards this work of God? May I not be placed just where I am because I can do what no others could do. Some of you young men especially, without the ties of family to hold you in this country, without a large church around you, or not having yet plunged yourself into the sea of business, you, I say, are standing where in the passion of your first love you might fitly say, here am I. And to others, if God has endowed you with any wealth, given you any talent, placed you in a favorable position, you are the person who should say, perhaps I have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
I may be placed where I am on purpose that I may render essential help to the cause of God. Here at any rate I am. I feel the presence of this glorious God. I see the skirts of his garments as he reveals himself to me. I almost hear the rush of the seraphim wings as I perceive how near heaven is to earth. And I feel in my soul I must give myself up to God. I feel in my own heart my indebtedness to the Christ of God. I see the need of the heathen. I love them for Jesus' sake. The fiery coal is touching my lips even now. Here I am. Thou hast put me where I am, Lord. Take me as I am. Use me as thou wilt. May the divine spirit influence some of you who greatly love my Lord until you feel all this. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Hi, Heavenly Father, we just come before you at the end of this day. And we must confess that our hearts are so easily earthly bound, so easily tied to the transient things of this world. And yet we measure everything in our lives in the light of those things and not in the light of eternity, not in the light of this great vision of God. Won't you by your spirit stir within us, every single one of us here at Honey Ridge, this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ to say, here I am, send me. Whatever that may look like, Lord, every single one of us, that our hearts would be set on fire by the gospel of grace that we have received to be your ambassadors in this world, starting right here where you have placed us, but may it never stop here. May it continue to go further and further until the ends of the earth are covered with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.